Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Noel over there. It's like Jerry with a beard. <laughs> and this is Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. That's a good way to describe Noel. Yeah. Because it's not at all accurate. No. Except for the beard. No, but it's funny. It is funny. That's the point. How's it going? It's going fine. You got a good intro for this one? No, really. I was going to mention the uh, terrible avalanche on Everest. Oh, yeah. That took the lives of, I believe, 15 Sherpa. Yeah, that was sad. Yeah. It was especially sad because we know how Sherpa work. We've done an episode on it before. Yeah. And... You know, to live and die on the mountain, it's kind of like, uh, it's well, it's become the Sherpa way a little bit, but it's still a major tragedy. Yeah, because Sherpa, if you go back and listen to that show, are, I think we even called it, what, like warm Warm, living. friendly living. Yeah, like they're really great. Yeah. And just good souls, and it was it was super sad to hear about that. Is yeah. that what prompted this uh, idea? I believe so. Just say yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, it was. I thought it might have been, I know you know a lot about snow crystal shape because of your Don't Be Dumb episode recently. I thought that might have been it. Yeah, about whether or not there is such a thing as two snowflakes that are exactly alike. Can, what's the answer? I think that's a good way to start out. No, not really. Okay, there, so each one is perfect and special? If you had, if you're comparing snowflakes that are formed from a very small amount of water, uh-huh. then you're probably going to find some that are identical. Right. But as I say in that episode of Don't Be Dumb, if you count those, you're a jerk. <laughs> so like a real snowflake, like a snowflake, like the kind yeah. that children love uh-huh. and that you have embroidered on your sweater. No, there's no two that are alike. That's pretty cool. Even though something like 70 septillion snowflakes fall to earth in a year. Wow. That's a lot of snowflakes. Yeah. Yeah. But when you put them all together, they don't necessarily stick. Yeah. And every once in a while, something can happen, not yodeling, that can trigger an avalanche. Yeah, and I was, uh, when we were reading through this, I found that there were a lot of differences, obviously, between avalanches and uh, slides yeah. that we've covered. Yeah, we did landslides. Yeah, and I even found a few little similarities in wildfires, which I did not expect. Lay it on me. Well, we'll get to it later. Oh, okay. Like potential ways to, we'll, we'll get to it. Well, lay it on me at a future time. <laughs> okay. So, um, avalanches. Yeah. Basically, an avalanche is, is, uh, well, it's, it's a failure of a large or small amount of snow Mm -hmm. to stay in place any longer. Yeah. Friction, once again. Yes. Just like with landslides, um, the, the mass overcomes the force of friction that's holding it in place. And it just kind of moves downhill all at once. Yeah. The thing is, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But in North America, uh, uh, an avalanche can reach something like 230,000 cubic meters in size. That's huge. It's about 20 football fields filled 10 feet deep with snow. How fast? Uh, I've seen up to and beyond 100 miles an hour once <laughs> they really get going. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. So uh, 20 football fields filled 10 feet deep with snow moving at uh, over 100 miles an hour down a mountain. Yeah. If you you're Morgan in the way. Freeman yeah. To, to save the day. Pretty much. <laughs> Uh, you're in trouble, basically. Uh-huh. So avalanches are a pretty big deal, even though it's just snow. And snow is beautiful and wonderful and cold. It's it, like all of it moving at once is a problem. That's right. And um, 
there's a lot of different ways that an avalanche can form, but really there's three there's three factors involved. You got snow, yeah. You have a slope or an incline, sure. And then you have some sort of trigger, yeah. And like I said, it's not yodeling. Loud sounds just don't really have what it takes yeah. to trigger an avalanche. That's that's uh, in the movies that so you'll see that. Yeah. German movies. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I guess let's back up a little bit uh, to what we were originally talking about, which was the, the shape of the snow itself. Right. Because that has an impact on what's, you know, when the snow hits the ground, it's going to form what's called a snowpack. And how stable the snowpack is, uh-huh. is uh, depends on the snow that is uh, that makes up the snowpack. And like how it bonds together depends on the actual shape of those little crystals. Uh, if you have a six pointed crystal, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be steadier, more stable than like needle shaped crystals. It's right. Pack together better. Yeah. And then so there's different factors that contribute to what kind of snow falls, what kind of snow accumulates. And then snow undergoes um, a metamorphosis once it becomes part of the snowpack, depending on conditions. That's right. For example, the temperature grade gradient has a big effect on how snow within a snowpack, which is just these blankets and blankets of snow that build up over the course of a season. Yeah. Um, if there's, say, a higher temperature gradient, so uh, at the surface it's very, very cold. Yeah. But below, toward the ground, it's actually warmer because of the heat, the radiant heat coming out of the earth. Sure. The larger the temperature gradient, the larger the difference in the amount of water vapor. Yeah. So warmer air or warmer snow holds more water vapor, and water vapor likes homeostasis just like everything else, so it moves from one end to another, Yeah, and that actually helps trigger metamorphosis of snowflake shapes within the snowpack by um, taking what's already rounded, Yeah, and that's what you want. That's a stable snowpack. Yeah, which I thought would be more unstable, but uh, yeah, yeah, it packs together easier. Right, rounded snowflakes pack together easier. And when water vapor moves from one place to another, uh, it takes rounded snowflakes and actually makes them faceted, which are more angled yeah, snowflakes. Yeah, flat, flat surfaces, basically. And those don't lock together as well. So that's one form of instability is you, when you have a temperature gradient. Yes, and if you have a lot of those faceted flakes, it's going to be called a depth hoar. H O A R, and a whore is uh, is the the light like you can even kind of see them on like sunny days the mm-hmm. sort of shiny crystally uh, surface um, layer on top that's like not really bonded exactly it's frost is another word for it I like whore like avalanche we should name this avalanches the disaster with the most jargon. <laughs> Because there is a lot of jargon involved in avalanches. There is. We've already skipped over some of it, like rhyme. Well, yeah, rhyme is when... Um, R-I-M-E. Yeah, it's basically, have you ever seen like a uh, um, a ship going through the Arctic and it has like globules of ice? Yeah, or like a tree collecting ice. That's rhyme. Yeah. Where it's just basically a bunch of water turns into ice really quick and accumulates quickly. That's rhyme. Horror is frost. Rhyme is like globules of ice. What about a grapple? Uh, that is when you have deposits of rime yes. that build up and form pellets of but, snow. Yeah, but they're not stable, even though they're pellet-like. Yeah. Which kind of flies in the face, because I thought round was more stable. I think they're larger, though. Yeah, I think, I think they're, they're like spherical, whereas round is like flat and rounded edges. Okay. So pellets are like, yeah, those things, you know, you get a handful of those yellow pellets, 
roll them around in your palms like so. And you're yeah. going to see, like, it, there's no <laughs> friction there. It overcomes friction. That's true. Uh, if you have, you can also get rounding if, if it's a low temperature gradient and you get a lot of uh, um, sub-freezing going on, uh-huh. then it's going to cause the rounding, which is actually good. That's going to make it more stable, like we were talking about. Right. Um, so you've got temperature gradient, you've got rounding from um, a low temperature gradient. Yeah. You yeah. have different types of snow that accumulate. If faceting. Is, can that be a verb? I just made it one. Yeah. Faceting. Yeah, faceting is basically, it's another type of metamorphosis where yeah. a snowflake undergoes a change in the snowpack after it's already fallen. It's just laying there. Like you think when snow falls, it's it's felled. But no, it's going through some changes. Yeah. Basically, a puberty of snow is what happens in the <laughs> snowpack. And when faceting happens, it's the opposite of rounding. Those edges become um, more pronounced, more angular. And um, a snowflake can turn into what's called depth hoar, H-O-A-R again. Yes. Uh, and it's pretty cool. Did you see the picture of depth hoar? It's the coolest looking snowflake you can find. That is pretty cool. Like it looks carved out. Like um, it looks 3D printed basically, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Um, it and, like a piece of machinery or something. But uh, from the looks of it, it looks like it would just totally lock in with any other snowflake. But for some reason, that's not the case. So when you get depth hoar, which is a very faceted, snow-packed snowflake, um, it's not going to lead to a stable snowpack. None of these are. Basically, everything except rounding um, leads to an unstable snowpack. That's right. And that's one of the triggers or one of the factors involved in an avalanche. That's right. Uh, What you have is if you have a failure layer, and that's the weak layer inside the snowpack, it's called the failure layer because... It fails you and causes the avalanche. <laughs> it fails everybody. But um, it can be caused by a lot of things, uh, the things we were just mentioning. And uh, depending on some other factors is how it's going to deal with that failure level. Um, it can slough off the snow. And I think most people have seen that is when you see uh, like the inverted V-shape, loose powdery snow coming down a mountain. Yeah, that's slough. That is slough. And that is not super dangerous. It usually doesn't do a lot of damage. Um, so that's not like the worst case scenario. No, and slough is the result of typically the failure layer is high up in the snowpack. Yes. So it's just some surface snow that's going to move as part of the avalanche. Yeah. If it's deeper, then you're going to get the the bad boy of the avalanche scene, which is the um, slab avalanche. Mm-hmm. And that's when the failure layer is deep down, and it's going to bring, obviously, a lot more compact, uh, big chunks sliding down over that that bed layer. Or it could be a huge chunk, a single chunk, um, reminiscent of when uh, you have a lot of snow on your windshield, and the sun comes out and heats it, and the, the glass becomes warmer, so the bottom of it loses friction and stability and slides down all at once. That's right. That's basically a mini slab avalanche happening on your car. Yeah, and if, it, if it's wet, um, your slab, it's going to be slower, which sounds good, um, but it's going to hit with more force. It has more water to it. It has yeah. more mass and volume. More weight, baby. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that slope. Uh, if you, They generally happen between 25 and 60, and most common between 20, 35 and 45 degrees. Uh, is when you're going to get an avalanche. If it's more than that, uh, steeper than that, then it's just going to be sloughing constantly and probably not be a danger. Right. 
And if it's less than that, then it's not enough of a slope to cause any problems. Yeah, it's not really going to move very much, if at no, all. That's just called party time right. on the mountain. There's also other factors um, that contribute to whether a, a, an area is avalanche prone or not, too. Like um, if it's on the um, sunny side of the mountain yep. where it gets a lot of morning sun, uh, it will actually warm up and and basically settle. The ice pack settles and becomes more stable. Yeah. Than on the shadier side of the mountain. Same with leeward and windward. Yeah, both the, of these can, I thought was the opposite of how it should be. I, I had that same problem too because they say specifically the freeze thaw cycle. Yeah. Can can create like a layer of ice in the snowpack. Yeah. That will be a failure layer eventually. Yeah. So if it's in the sun every day. I mean, it's slightly melting a little bit, right? Then you know why wouldn't that also be the case? I, I didn't get to the bottom of that one. I have no idea, but that's what I kept coming across in source after source. Yeah, and the same thing with, like you said, leeward. It means it's it it's uh, on the opposite side of the wind, mm-hmm. and I would think that uh, being on the windy side would be more dangerous. Well, no, because that causes slough. The wind like blows oh, it okay. off. Okay, I guess that makes sense. That one makes Which sense. Prevents it's, the yeah. It's the sunny side that's just confusing. Yeah, I still say a strong gust of wind could cause a slab. Sure, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> fly in the face of the experts. And then um, they also rate, and not rate like this is a five star avalanche, the best I've seen all season. Right. They have um, a rating scale from R1 D1 to R5 D5, and yes, nerds, there is an R2 D2 avalanche. I guess you mean me because that was going to be my first question. I sent you the chart. I know. Okay. But I'm still going to ask. So the R is the um, size of the avalanche relative to the path that takes into account its width, its length, its depth, the size of the avalanche. R1 is laughable. R5 is the whole side of the mountain just came down. What's an R2-D2? It's a little above laughable. It's more like a whoa. It's kind of like you would imagine R2-D2 is an avalanche. Okay. You know? All right. Uh, and then uh, R5-D5, the D stands for destructive force. Right. And that, like in an R5-D5, the D of that avalanche can like gouge the earth. Wow. It's It's moving with such power and uh, intensity. And they can go up to, I think, 1.9 miles, um, it, it, traveling almost two miles. At a, at a solid, with a solid chunk? Mm-hmm. Pretty scary stuff. Yeah, it's scary stuff. And before we get to even more stuff, let's take a, a, a message break. All right. Stuff you stuff you okay, so I believe we were talking scary things. And what can be scarier than avalanche triggered by a yodeler? <laughs> uh, we've already said that's not the case. Twice. Uh, yeah, that's three times. <laughs> um, usually, well, sometimes it can be, usually it's people, but sometimes it can be a natural thing, like if a tree falls yeah. or if uh, the weather really changes quickly. Um, what else? A, um, big, a big chunk of ice falling off a tree could trigger it. Yeah, a cornice. Um, basically, a, a an ice pack can build up over a cliff's edge and just kind of hang there. And then eventually that the, it'll collapse under its own weight and it can fall onto a ridgeline below, that can definitely trigger trigger an avalanche. But in most cases, it's people. Yeah, and apparently in most fatal avalanches, 
the person who dies in the avalanche triggered it in most cases. Ooh. Yeah. Karmic nature? I guess. It seems a little... A little harsh? Yeah, a little <laughs> imbalanced, you know? Yeah, I agree. Uh... All right, so let's say you have an avalanche happening. There are going to be three parts to this avalanche. Mm-hmm. You've got your starting zone, which is uh, above the tree line, and that's where the slab actually, that's the top part where it breaks free. It's also known as a crown. A crown? Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, then you have your track, and that's basically just the path that it takes. Uh, you're going to, if you go to, like, these mountains in the summertime, you might see that track uh as a big open area of green grass between trees. Yeah, because the avalanches wipe the trees off of that slope. So like if you're if you were unclear on whether uh avalanches are powerful, yes, they take out trees on their way down. Yeah. And houses and ski condos and yeah, skiers. Which is another reason why they're so dangerous for someone caught in the avalanche. Because it's not only the snow that may or may not bury you, you're also getting pummeled against stuff on your way down. Oh, uh, yeah. Because of the force of the, the avalanche Good carrying point. you along. Like being whacked into a tree or something? Yeah. Uh, and then you've got your run out as the third segment, and that is where it comes to a sliding slow stop. And that is bad news because it's, it's, they uh, liken it to concrete in this article. And it just sets up super hard, and if you're underneath it, uh, you've got, you know, 15 minutes or so to get yourself out of there or it's bye-bye to life. <laughs> like the clock is ticking. Yeah. Apparently, most people say that you can survive buried in an avalanche for about 18 minutes. That's tops. And the best way to survive an avalanche is to never start one. And there's techniques that... um well, basically, gov- local governments. Yeah. That um, where mountains and ski slopes are situated, and then ski resorts will hire ski patrols. To basically, go out and test. And there's actually people who are called avalanche avalanche forecasters. Yeah. And they, I guess, study the snowfall, the the atmospheric conditions, like if there's been a freeze thaw cycle, and they can predict roughly like when or where an avalanche may happen. Right. And they say. Point the howitzer that way, and they'll make sure people are off of the slope, and they shoot artillery at slopes that to is, try to trigger yeah, avalanches. That is one way to do it, and that's why that's where it reminded me of wildfires, um, doing controlled burns and stuff like that. Like, oh yeah, they'll actually set off an avalanche I see what you mean. to keep an avalanche from happening, right? But that's really the only way. Well, there's also ski checking, which seems kind of sort of like smoke dumpers. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. but it's almost like, um, yeah, I guess it is a little bit. It's it's mind-bogglingly dangerous sounding. Yeah, it's a job where you, on purpose, get on your skis and ski along the fracture line um, to see what happens? To try to trigger or it. Or they're trying yeah. to trigger it. Yeah. Okay, and then they're going to quickly try and outrun it. Yes, and they're hopefully skiing at the fracture line. Yeah. At the top of it, like around the crown, rather than inside the avalanche zone. You don't want to be there. So it would it would fall out below them. Yeah. Rather than carry them down. And if you're ski checking, you're you're never ski checking alone. You're always part of a team, and everybody's watching you, and you have a beacon on, and all the other stuff that you're supposed to have. Yeah. But it's still one of the more dangerous things I think you can do 
in snow. Yeah, I, I hope we have a listener that does this because I'd love to know more about it. Ski checking? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to hear that too. Uh, some of the other things they can do to prevent uh, or interrupt an avalanche that happens is to put uh, like physical objects in place to prevent it, like nets and anchors and fences and stuff like that. And that if an avalanche starts, at least it can uh, divert it or stop it quicker mm-hmm. or maybe prevent it from happening Yeah, to begin with. Sometimes they'll hire local teens to just stand there and link arms, stand in the way of avalanches. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. The, the, the Red Rover approach? It depends on where you live. Okay. Estonia is huge on that. Really? That level wow. of prevention. Uh, they can happen anytime. They're most common in the winter, obviously, but they can happen in any month and um, usually in the first like 24 hours after a big snowfall. It's going to be a little more likely. Oh. I guess things haven't settled in quite yet. Yes, and um, heavily logged areas. Oh, yeah. Areas that have been denuded of trees. Sure. Uh, because trees, all taken together, can kind of serve as anchors for a snowpack. Yeah, so they tr- trying to reforest areas is a big, uh, a big thing now. And I wonder, I didn't find this out, but I wonder also if trees represent a kind of a crack in a large snowpack, too. In that, like, if there was a piece that was coming off, it would take less with it because it would eventually reach a tree, and that tree would represent a break in that connectiveness in the larger snowpack. I'm going to say yes. I would say yes, too. (laughs) That just makes sense. Yeah. But the problem is people like to do things like what are called backcountry sports in places where there aren't trees. Yeah. I mean, the majority of avalanche victims are... uh Youngish dudes who, let's be honest, they're out there with their snowboard. They're getting dropped in by a helicopter. Or there's plenty of dudettes who, who snowboard too. Yeah, that's true. But they did say males is the most common. So I think that's a fact. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're bros. You know, they're <laughs> ski bros. <laughs> um, man, I can't believe, I, I guess I do believe that, but the person who causes the avalanche is the person who most likely dies. That's just. Yeah, and the reason why is because when you're, when you accidentally trigger, trigger this avalanche, it doesn't, you're not, you're on a, on a line, a fault line, basically, that yeah. you're triggering, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to happen below you. Right. You could be skiing right through this slab and, the stuff above you is going to come down too. Yeah. So like this whole slabs is going to come down with you in the middle of it, which, so you're the one who triggered it. You're the one who got buried alive too. All right. Well, we don't want that to happen to anybody. So, uh, how can we, well, I guess we should talk about how to do your diligence as a backcountry bro. Yeah. And like, avoid these things. What you should do. So basically, um, you, before you go out, you want to check with any local um, message boards or uh, websites that have avalanche warnings. Yeah, the bro hotline. Right. You, yeah, you want to call. Yeah. <laughs> be like, is there going to be What's an avalanche? Up? Right. Um, and there's like uh, people who are paid to monitor this kind of thing and alert the public. So step one is to know whether there's a high likelihood of an avalanche happening where you are. Sure. Um, you also want to have taken a course in surviving avalanches. Yeah, if you're doing this hardcore backcountry stuff, <clears throat> then hopefully you've done that beforehand. And there's a lot to learn, too. Oh, yeah. Like, this isn't... We're just kind of scratching the surface here. Like, there is a lot to 
to know, to understand avalanches, to be able to forecast them and to test, yeah. like doing field tests. Um, so you want to really know what you're doing before you go out. You always want to go with somebody else. Got to have a bro buddy. The thing that I think you would just have to be a total idiot to not have is a beacon. Yes. A functioning beacon on you at all times beneath your clothes so it can't be swept away. Uh, yeah. And you want that set to transmit. Uh, yes. If you're the, uh, the person, the transmitter. Um, so they can find you when you're buried. Yeah. And dying in 15 minutes. They're not expensive. They're not, um, they're not hard to come by. No. And you, if you go out doing anything in any backcountry sport and you don't have one on, again, Josh Clark thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> and w- well, we may as well go ahead and talk about a couple of other pieces of equipment that you should have if you're into this. Um, they have these little backpacks now that, uh, have airbags in them. Um, that you basically like pull a little ripcord and a big pillowy bag uh, erupts, sort of like a car airbag yeah. outside the top of it. And what that's going to do is take up a bunch of space uh, so you have air to breathe um, once you're buried and you have you know a big hole of air at least. Right. Plus, it also has the effect of um, if you ever have a, a like a canister of mixed nuts and you shake it, you'll notice like the bigger nuts, the Brazil nuts, all move to the top. Yeah. Uh, same thing with you and an inflatable vest. You become bigger, so sure. you will move toward the top of the avalanche slab. Yeah, and some padding in case there's right. debris. Yeah. Uh, and then the other cool thing is called the, the Avalong, A-V-A-L-U-N-G. Mm-hmm. And those are usually built into your backpack, too, and it's super simple. All it is is a uh, – it's sort of like a little uh, scuba mouthpiece that you breathe through, and uh, what it does is it diverts your uh, exhalation – down through the backpack and out like your where your butt is. Right. Because the danger there is if you're trapped under snow, and we'll get there in a second, um, you're going to have a small like pocket of air, and one of the ways you can die is from poisoning yourself with, with your CO2. That's right. So if you got the Avalon, and you got your airbag in your backpack. Your, your beacon. Your beacon, and maybe an inclinometer to see what that slope is before you go tackle it with your snowboard. And say, bruh, that one's 48 degrees. Well, what do you want to be above 60? Yeah. Jeez. I know. <laughs> Not that's, me. <laughs> that's awfully close to 90. <laughs> yeah. Maybe then go toward the 25 slope. You also want to do some tests, too. Like where you're going to be skiing, snowboarding, high marking. Yeah, be proactive. Uh, you want to dig what's called a quick pit, which is basically you become an amateur. Um, what is a snow person? Like smell a sense of snow? Avalancheologist? No. No? Snowologist? It is a snowologist, but there's a word Santa for Claus? It. Right. <laughs> you want to become an amateur Santa Claus. You dig a pit um, that affords you a view of all the layers of the snowpack so you can basically visually inspect it for a failure layer. Yeah. Um, there's other tests you can do as well um, that we won't get into, but if you are going to go out there, they should be teaching you this in your um, in your backcountry survival class. Yeah, course class. Sure. Um, but you can also familiarize yourself on the U.S. Forest Service um, website. They have a bunch of step-by-step instructions with pictures yeah. for testing for avalanches. Yeah, and we looked at these in 
uh, it's just no, it doesn't do any good to try and describe it. We would just get you killed. <laughs> so go, go look at the diagrams. Yeah. Uh, and you also want to, you know, prick up your ears and listen for whomping noises or hollow sounds and uh, avoid shady ears. Like, just keep your eyes peeled. If you're experienced out there, then you, you're probably going to know what to look for. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one other thing, too. If you see tracks already in a snowpack, that does not mean that it's already been tested and is safe. No, that means you can go that way, right? No, it <laughs> means that the person who went before you is lucky. Right. Technically. Possibly. Yeah. And the last one, never, never uh, travel above your partner. Like, Oh, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. If your partner gets above you, then they're being very selfish. Yes. Or to kill you. Or you. Yeah. 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 You should wonder, wait, that travel insurance policy I signed. (laughs) Now I get it. So if you've done all this, you do, you, you know how to do a Roche block test. Yeah. And you know how to dig a quick pit faster than anybody else. And you're, you never travel above your partner and you still just triggered an avalanche. You've done everything right, but like it's, it's real. Right. You're the person. Stuff is real. You're the victim, let's say. Yes. All right. We're going to give advice for two people, the victim and then the person who sees it and goes, oh, my gosh. The witness. That guy just got buried. Yeah. Um, all right. So if you're one of the bro victims, uh, you're three ways you can die. Uh, physical trauma, like we said, let's say you get smashed by a tree mm-hmm. on the way down. Uh, you can suffocate in the snow or die of hypothermia. Yeah, take your pick. <laughs> None of those are good. Uh, if you find that the avalanche is happening, this is before you're buried alive, uh, and let's say you're a skier or a snowmobiler or some other extreme sports person, um, <laughs> they say to try and like outski it and outride it if you can. Yeah. Um, you know, get that little rear view mirror going yeah. and hit the gas as quick as you can. Um, ski off the slab. And if you can do that, then great. Yeah. If you can't, then you may be buried, and the first thing you want to do is block your mouth so it doesn't fill up with snow. And you want to, you know, try and, like, put your arm over it or block it as much as possible if you don't have one of those airbags because whatever little space you create in front of your mouth is your breathable air. Right. You want to use one arm or your hand or something, and with the other arm or leg or whatever you can, you want to thrust it toward... Whatever you think is up, try yeah. to get some sort of visual cue of where you are to people. Yeah, and they suggest a swimming motion. That's on your way down. You're trying to basically swim your way to the top of the of the pile, of the slab that's carrying you down. Well, yeah. And then once you start to come to a stop, then you throw your hand in front of your mouth and you try to thrust the leg up or something like that. Right. What I read, though, is you're going to be so disoriented, you'll have... Good luck with any of this. Right. That's right. like punching a shark. Yeah. But <laughs> some people luck. can do it. Yeah, it happens. Right. Some people have the presence of mind to do it. Those people are the ones who these instructions are for. That's right. Uh, they advise you to bail on your ski gear. Um, if you have one of those backpacks, though... Um, with all your emergency gear, obviously you want to hang on to that. Um, Here's if, the hardest part. What? Stay calm. Yeah, stay calm. Um, they advise you if you are on a snowmobile and you get uh, removed from it, I don't know how you would do this, but try and get out of the path of the snowmobile as well because that will kill you. Yeah. But again, this is all happening so fast. It's just, I guess you rely on uh, instinct. 
I guess so. You turn into a steely nerved dude, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then again, staying calm. Stay calm. You're now buried under snow. And the best advice is to stay calm. Yeah, don't start screaming because you're no. burning your oxygen. No one's going to hear you because they're still pretty far away. Yeah. Hopefully they have, they watched you the whole time. We'll get into that in a second. Um, and you just have to do what you can by conserving your energy, conserving your breath, and conserving your voice until you hear somebody above you. Yes. Then you can start screaming as loud as you want. Right. But there's no sense in screaming whatsoever until you hear somebody. Um, and then you better have that beacon on. If you have that beacon on, you're set to transmit. You're with one or more other people who were with you when this happened. Yeah, hopefully they're not buried too. Your chances are, are actually pretty good. There's something like a 92% survival rate um, for people who are dug out within the first 15 minutes. Yeah, that's pretty quick though. So I guess that brings us to... if. You are uh, the other bro, and you see this happen to your friend. Um, this is what you're going to want to do because uh, you are their first help. Like you may not have enough time. You know, you got 15 to 18 minutes. You may not have enough time to ski to the rescue unit right. or to get word out. So it's sort of up to you to try and uh, get your buddy out. Yeah, if you're in a larger group, then yeah, you send some people back for help, and then some other people stay to conduct the search and rescue themselves. If it's just you. Basically, every bit of advice is if you have any idea of where they went down, where yeah. you think they might be, go straight there. Yeah, and it's sort of like uh, following your golf shot. Like if it starts to happen, you don't want to look around for help or anything. You want to lock your eyeballs on your buddy and follow that as long as you can until he completely disappears. Right. And wherever he disappears or she that is your last, uh, that's the point of reference you're going to want to hit first. Yeah, you want to just keep your eyes on that point and go straight to it. Um, you uh, basically, you want to wait a second. Well, yeah, yeah, it could be another avalanche. Yeah, you want to make sure the snow is settled. Um, and then you go over to the area where you last saw the person and you take your own beacon because the cool thing about beacons is not only do they transmit, they receive. That's right. So any anybody with a beacon can transmit for help and receive to, to lend help, right? Yeah. So when you do that, if you're just one person, you go to the last place you saw the person and you start your search using your transponder and you start doing zigzagging motions down the mountain. Yeah. Basically, you do a sweep of the avalanche area. You do a sweep. Uh, you might have something called an avalanche probe on you, and that's a super long 10 or 12-foot pole that collapses down to a couple of feet, so you can have it in your little backpack. And, you know, it's basically a big poker that you can poke down in the snow. Yeah. If you hear your buddy go, ow! Yeah. Then that's great. And then um, some ski poles also have, like, uh, like the bottoms come off. Yeah. So that they can be turned into um, avalanche pokers. And hopefully you have a shovel on you, uh, because that is highly recommended as well. I don't think we ever pointed that out. Yeah, you can shovel a lot faster. You can move snow a lot faster with a shovel sure. than with your hands. So if you have a beacon, a probe, and a shovel, you could be okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a t-shirt. Yeah. And the other side is a guy like falling off a snowmobile. <laughs> uh, so you said zigzagging if you're by yourself. If you're with a group of folks, they recommend that you... Uh, lock arms and 
Um, sort of like, you know, when you're searching for a dead body in the woods, you just set up a line of people to cover as much ground as possible. That's right. And then if you find your buddy, dig him out and uh, treat them as quickly as possible. They may need a little CPR. They may need a little TLC. So turn on our CPR podcast while so your friend is... Us? Yeah. Remember staying alive? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just pump the chest to the beat of staying alive. <laughs> I forgot about that. And everything will be all right. That's right. Uh, and I've got nothing else. Do you? I don't either. Um, no, that's about it. Or if you want to avoid this stuff altogether, you do like me and don't ski. <laughs> no backcountry sports for you, huh? No, nah, I mean, I used to ski, but I was never very good. And uh, once you hit a certain age and you're not a great skier, it's like, why why even go out there? I've got a 50% chance of injuring myself. I would say you probably have a higher percentage chance than that. <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I took a, I was in Vermont skiing one time and I took a spill that, uh, it was sort of like Chevy Chase and Christmas Vacation. I slid, I had to have slid a half a mile down this mountain without being able to stop myself on my butt <laughs> without my skis and a little, 12-year-old maybe snowboarder snowboarded down with my skis, stuck them in next to me and said, dude, I've never seen someone slide that far in my life. And he snowboarded off. <laughs> and I said, well, you're pretty young. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it, was, it was pretty entertaining to see, I'm sure. <laughs> and this is when I was younger. It'd be much funnier now even. Oh, yeah. You know, like when the old guy falls, it's always funny. Sure. That's, I mean, like you said, Chevy Chase movies. Yeah. Uh, I do have one more thing, Chuck. It turns out the, the St. Bernard as a mountain rescue dog with its whiskey or brandy cask around its neck. Yeah. Supposedly is a myth. Like they, they I'm, I'm did have St. Bernard. They did have St. Bernard's <laughs> in the Alps and all that. And, and yeah. um, they did use them to like carry supplies and stuff. And sometimes even spirits around their neck. But so they were never used as like, like, they were never used as like ski patrol avalanche rescue dogs. Oh, uh, okay. They, they were just in the same area. The avalanches happened in a lot. And they just happened to have booze around their necks. I call that confirmed. No. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, just the popular conception that a St. Bernard is going to run up to you and dig you out and then, and yeah, give you whiskey. Like, yes, yeah. it's not correct. It's a Napoleonic lie. I am going to say that has happened once. Okay. Because <laughs> I want to think it happened. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And St. Bernard's are cool dogs, to be sure. Of course. Uh, if you want to know more about avalanches, like we said, uh, if you're serious about backcountry sports, you better go take a course. You better go to the Park Service's website on avalanches. Get that beacon, dude. Yes, or else Josh Clark thinks you're a dummy. Yeah. Um, and you can also go to HowStuffWorks.com and type in avalanche in the search bar there. And since I said all that, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this defiling history. And this dude purposefully said, if you read this, please don't show Josh because I want to hear his reaction. Okay. So here we go. Uh, hey, guys. I was listening to the 4th of July extravaganza mm-hmm. from a few years back uh, and realized I might have ruined a piece of American history. A few years ago, I bought a thicker, older book uh, looking to hollow it out so I could keep money and other important items in there <laughs> that I wanted, uh, that I didn't want to keep in my personal safe. Is this guy in prison? Yeah. He's not. Uh, a few days ago, I was listening to the part two of that 4th of July extravaganza, and 
uh, on the way back to University of Wisconsin. Go Badgers. Mm-hmm. And I heard you talking about the book Epic of America. Do you remember talking about that? Vaguely, yes. Because we had guest hosts. We had uh, Joe Randazzo and mm-hmm. Wyatt Sinek mm-hmm. and uh, Joe Garden mm-hmm. and Hallie Hagland. Mm-hmm. So they may have referenced that book, but I don't remember that. Okay. Uh, I knew that was the name of the book I bought to hollow out, uh, but thought surely it wasn't the same book. I got home, took a closer look, and it turns out I was wrong. Upon further research, I found I had bought a first edition, oh, uh, 1931 bona fide copy of Epic of America by James Treslow Adams, and I cut a hole in the middle of it. Uh, I thought it somewhat ironic I chose to fill the Epic of America with money. I nonetheless am distraught with my lack of knowledge and accidental disregard for one of the great analyses of the American dream. That is from Grant uh, Hermits. Here you go, Grant. That's his reaction, Grant. Indignation. He's ticked. You know, we got <laughs> um, hollowed out books from the guys who make uh, Rick and Morty. Yeah, Adult Swim. Yeah, hollowed out to fit perfectly. A flask. Yes. A Rick and Morty flask. It was pretty neat. Thanks for that. Why don't you get one of those, Grant? And I thought, when I saw that book, I thought, well, that's neat. They sent us a book, and it was called, like, Interesting Science Stuff or something like that. I think it was called Boring Science Stuff. Oh, Boring Science Stuff. Yeah, to ward people away from the book. I don't want to read that. Right. (laughs) Then you open it up, and you're like, whoa. (laughs) I've got it on my bar right now. Nice. The book? Sure. That's awesome. Where else would it be? I guess on my shelf here at work. In your work bag? Yeah. (laughs) With you at all times? Uh, If you want to tell us about some bonehead thing you did with a piece of Americana or anything else, we want to hear about it. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at discovery.com. And as always, hang out with us at our home on the web. The ill chill crib stuff you should know dot com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. dot com.